0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See Terms and Conditions 18. plus. Chapter 18 of Grey Lensman by E. E. Smith. Edmund Crowninshield sat in his office and seethed quietly. The all-pervasive blueness of the Colonian brought out even more prominently than usual by his mood. His plan to find out whether or not the ex-minor was a spy had backfired badly. He had had reports from Euphrasine that the fellow was not, could not, be a spy, and now his test had confirmed that conclusion too thoroughly by far. He would have to do some mighty quick thinking, and perhaps some salve spreading, or lose him. He certainly didn't want to lose a client who had over a quarter of a million credits to throw away, and who could not possibly resist his cravings for alcohol and bentlam much longer. But curse him! What had the fellow meant by having his kit-bag built of indurite, with a lock on it that not even his cleverest artists could pick? "'Come in,' he called, unctuously, in answer to a tap. "'Oh, it's you. What did you find out?' "'Janice isn't hurt. He didn't make a mark on her.' Just gave her a shove and scared hell out of her. But Clovis was nudged, believe me. He's still out. We'll be for hours, the doctor says. What a sock that guy's got. Clovis looks like he's been hit with a valerian maul. You're sure he was armed? Must have been. Typical gunfighter's crouch. He was ready, not bluffing, believe me. The man don't live that could bluff a room full of us like that. He was betting that he could whiff us all before we could get a gun out, and I wouldn't wonder if he was right. QX, beat it, and don't let anyone come near here except Williams." Therefore the X-Minor was the next visitor. You wanted to see me crowning shield before I flit. Kennison was fully dressed, even to his flowing cloak, and he was carrying his own kit. This, in an Aldebaranian, implied the extremest height of dudgeon. Yes, Mr. Williams, I wish to apologize for the house. However, somewhat exasperated, it does seem that you were abrupt to say the least in your reaction to a childish prank. Prank? The Aldebaranian's voice was decidedly unfriendly. Sir, to me, thionite is no prank. I don't mind nitrolabe or heroin, and a little bent'lum now and then is good for a man. But when anyone comes around me with thionite, I object, sir, vigorously, and I don't care who knows it. Evidently. But that wasn't really thionite. We would never permit it. And Miss Carter is an exemplary young lady. How was I to know it wasn't thionite? Williams demanded. And as for your Miss Carter— As long as a woman acts like a lady, I treat her like a lady. But if she acts like a zwilnick— Please, Mr. Williams, I treat her like a zwilnick, and that's that. Mr. Williams, please, not that word, ever. No? A planetary idiosyncrasy, perhaps? The ex-minor's towering wrath abated with curiosity. Now that you mention it— I do not recall having heard it lately, nor hereabouts. For its use, please accept my apology." Oh, this was better. Crown and Shield was making headway. The big Aldebaranian didn't even know Thionite when he saw it, and he had a rabid fear of it. There remains, then, only the very peculiar circumstance of your wearing arms here in a quiet hotel. Who says I was armed? Kennison demanded. Why? I, it was assumed," the proprietor was flabbergasted. The visitor threw off his cloak and removed his jacket, revealing a shirt of sheer glamorite through which could be plainly seen his hirsute chest and the smooth bronzed skin of his brawny shoulders. He strode over to his kit-bag, unlocked it, and took out a double dilameter harness, complete with instruments. He donned the contraption, put on jacket and cloak. Opened now this letter, shrugged his shoulders a few times to settle the new burden into its wonted position, and turned again to the hotel-keeper. "'This is the first time that I have worn this hardware since I came here,' he said quietly. "'Having the name, however, you may take it upon the very best of authority that I will be armed during the remaining minutes of my visit here. With your permission, I shall leave now.' Oh, no, that won't do, sir, really. Crown and Shield was almost abject at the prospect. We should be desolated. Mistakes will happen, sir. Planetary prejudices, misunderstandings. Give us a little more time to get really acquainted, sir. And thus it went. Finally Kennison let himself be mollified into staying on. With true Aldebaranian mulishness, however, he wore his armament, Proclaiming to all and sundry his sole reason, therefore, an Aldermanian gentleman, sir, keeps his word, however lightly or under whatever circumstances given. I said that I would wear these things as long as I stay here. Therefore, wear them. I must and I shall. I will leave here any time, sir, gladly. But while here, I remain armed every minute of every day. And he did. He never drew them, was always and in every way a gentleman. Nevertheless, the Zvilniks were always uncomfortably conscious of the fact that those grim, formidable portables were there, always there and always ready. The fact that they themselves went armed with weapons deadly enough was all too little reassurance. Always the quintessence of good behavior, Kinnison began to relax his barriers of reserve, he began to drink, to buy at least more and more. He had taken regularly a little bentlam. now, as though his will to moderation had begun to go down, he took larger and larger doses. It was not a significant fact to anyone, except himself, that the nearer drew the time for a certain momentous meeting the more he apparently drank, and the larger the doses of bentlam became. Thus it was a purely unnoticed coincidence that it was upon the afternoon of the day, during whose evening the conference was to be held, that Williams's quiet and gentlemanly drunkenness degenerated into a noisy and obstreperous carousal. As a climax he demanded, and obtained, the twenty-four units of Bentlam, which, his host knew, comprised the highest ceiling dose of the old unregenerated mining days. They gave him the titanic jolt, undressed him, put him carefully to bed upon a soft mattress covered with silken sheets, and forgot him. Before the meeting every possible source of interruption or spying was checked, rechecked, and guarded against. But no one even thought of suspecting the free-spending, hard-drinking, drug-soaked Williams. How could they? And so it came about that the Grey Lensmen attended that meeting also as insidiously and as successfully as he had the one upon Euphracene. It took longer this time to read the reports, notes, orders, addresses, and so on, for this was a regional meeting, not merely a local one. However, the lensman had ample time, and was a fast reader withal, and in Warsaw he had an aide who could tape the stuff as fast as he could send it in. Wherefore when the meeting broke up, Kennison was well content. He had forged another link in his chain, was one link nearer to Boscone, his goal. As soon as Kenison could walk without staggering he sought out his host. He was ashamed, embarrassed, bitterly, and painfully humiliated, but he was still, or again, an Aldebaranian gentleman. He had made a resolution, and gentlemen of that planet did not take their gentlemanliness lightly. First, Mr. Crownenshield. I wish to apologize, most humbly, most profoundly, sir, for the fashion in which I have outraged your hospitality." He could slap down a girl and have kill a guard without loss of self-esteem, but no gentleman, however inebriated, should descend to such depths of commonness and vulgarity as he had plumbed here. Such conduct was inexcusable. I have nothing whatever to say in defence or palliation of my conduct. I can only say that, in order to spare you the task of ordering me out, I am leaving. Oh, come, Mr. Williams, that is not at all necessary. Anyone is apt to take a drop too much occasionally. Really, my friend, you were not at all offensive. We have not even entertained the thought of you leaving us. Nor had he. The ten thousand credits which the lensman had thrown away during the spree would have condoned behavior a thousand times worse, but Crown and Shield did not refer to that. "'Thank you for your courtesy, sir, but I remember some of my actions, and I blush with shame,' the Aldebaranian rejoined stiffly. He was not to be mollified. I could never look your other guests in the face again. I think, sir, that I can still be a gentleman, but until I am certain of the fact, until I know I can get drunk as a gentleman should, I am going to change my name and disappear. Until a happier day, sir, Goodbye. Nothing could make the stiff-necked Williams change his mind, and leave he did, scattering five credit notes abroad as he departed. However, he did not go far. As he had explained so carefully to Crown and Shield, William Williams did disappear, forever, Kennison hoped. He was all done with him. But the Grey Linsman made connections with Wurzel. "'Thanks, old man,' Kennison shook one of the Valencians' gnarled, hard hands, even though Wurzel never had had much use for that peculiarly human gesture. "'Nice work. I won't need you for a while now, but I probably will later.' If I succeed in getting the data, I'll lend it to you as usual for record. I'll even be less able than usual, I imagine, to take recording apparatus with me. If I can't get it, I'll call you anyway to help me make other arrangements." "'Clear ether, big fella.' "'Luck, Kennison!' And the two lensmen went their separate ways, Warsel to Prime Base, the Talorian on a long flit indeed. He had not been surprised to learn that the galactic director was not in the galaxy proper, but in a star-cluster, nor at the information that he whom he sought was one Jalty, a Colonian. Boscone, Kennison thought, was a highly methodical sort of a chap. He marked out the best way to do anything, and then stuck by it through thick and thin. Kennison was almost wrong there. For not long afterward Boscone was called in session, and that very question was discussed seriously and at length. Granted that the Colonians are good executives, the new Ninth of Boscone argued, they are strong of mind and do produce results. It cannot be claimed, however, that they are in any sense comparable to us of the Ike Eichlin was thinking of replacing Helmuth, but he put off acting until it was too late. "'There are many factors to consider,' the first replied gravely. "'The planet is uninhabitable save for warm-blooded oxygen-breathers. The base is built for such, and such is the entire personnel. Years of time went into the construction there.' one of us could not work efficiently alone, insulated against its heat and its atmosphere. If the whole dome were conditioned for us we must needs train an entire new organization to man it. Then, too, the colonians have to work well in hand, and, with all due respect to you and the others of your mind, it is by no means certain that even Eichlin could have saved Helmuth's base had he been there. Eichlin's own doubt upon this point had much to do with his delay in acting. In the end it comes down to efficiency, and some colonians are efficient. Jalty is one. And while it may seem as though I am boasting of my own selection of directors, please note that Prellin the Colonian director upon Brunsaka seems to have been able to stop the advance of the patrol." "'Seems to may be too exactly descriptive for comfort,' said another darkly. "'There is always a possibility,' was conceded. But whenever that lensman has been able to act he has acted. Our keenest observers can find no trace of his activities elsewhere with the possible exception of the misfunctioning of the experimental hyperspatial tube of our allies of Dalgon. Some of us have from the first considered that venture ill-advised, premature, and its seizure by the patrol smacks more of their able mathematical physicist than of a purely hypothetical superhuman lensman. Therefore it seems logical to assume that Prellen has stopped him. Our observers report that the patrol is loath to act illegally without evidence, and no evidence can be obtained. Business was hurt, but Jalti is reorganizing as rapidly as may be. I still say that the galactic base should be rebuilt and manned by the Ike, Nine insisted. It is our sole remaining Grand Headquarters there. And since it is both the brain of the peaceful conquest and the nucleus of our new military organization, it should not be subjected to any unnecessary risk. And will you, of course, be glad to take that highly important command, man the dome with your own people, and face the lensman, if and when he comes, backed by the forces of the patrol? Why, uh, no. The ninth managed, I am of so much more use here. That's what we all think, the first said cynically. While I would like very much to welcome that hypothetical lensman here, I do not care to meet him upon any other planet. I really believe, however, that any change in our organization would weaken it seriously. Jalty is capable energetic and as well-informed as is any of us as to the possibilities of invasion by the lensman or his patrol. Beyond asking him whether he needs anything, and sending him everything he may wish of supplies and of reinforcements, I do not see how he can improve matters." But even before the question was asked, Kinnison's blackly invisible, indetectable speedster was well within the star cluster. The Guardian Fortresses were closer spaced by far than Helmuths had been, electromagnetics had a three hundred percent overlap, Ether and sub alike were suffused with vibratory fields in which nullification of detection was impossible, and the observers were alert and keen. To what avail? The speedster was nonferrous, intrinsically indetectable. The lensman slipped through the net with ease. Sliding down the edge of the world's black shadow, he felt for the expected thought-screen, found it, dropped cautiously through it, and poised there, observing during one whole rotation. This had been a fair green world, once. It had had forests. It had been peopled by intelligent urban dwellers, who had had roads, works, and other evidences of advancement. But the cities had been melted down into vast lakes of lava and slag. Cold now for years, cracked, fissured, weathered. Yet to Kinnison's probing sense they told tales of horror, revealed all too clearly the incredible ferocity and ruthlessness with which the conquerors had wiped out all the population of a world. What had been roads and works were jagged ravines and craters of destruction. The forests of the planet had been burned again and again, only a few charred stumps remaining to mark where a few of the mightiest monarchs had stood. Except for the Bosconian base the planet was a scene of desolation and ravishment indescribable. "'They'll pay for that, too, the fiends,' Kinnison gritted, and directed his attention toward the base forbidding indeed it loomed thrice a hundred square miles of massively banked offensive and defensive armament with a central dome of such colossal mass as to dwarf even the stupendous fabrication surrounding it typical bosconian layout kennison thought very much like helmuth's grand base fully as large and as strong or stronger but he had cracked that one and he was pretty sure that he could crack this Exploringly, he sent out his sense of perception, nor was he surprised to find that the whole aggregation of structures was screened. He had not thought that it would be as easy as that. He did not need to get inside the dome this time, as he was not going to work directly upon the personnel. Inside the screen anywhere would do. But how to get there? The ground all around the thing was flat, as level as molten lava would cool and every inch of it was bathed in the white glare of floodlights. They had observers, of course, and photocells, which were worse. Approach then, either through the air or upon the ground, did not look so promising. That left only underground. They got water from somewhere, wells, perhaps, and their sewerage went somewhere unless they incinerated it, which was highly improbable. There was a river over there. He'd see if there wasn't a trunk sewer running into it somewhere." There was. There was also a place within easy flying distance to hide his speedster, an overhanging bank of smooth black rock. The risk of his being seen was nil anyway, for the only intelligent life upon the planet inhabited the Bosconian fortress and did not leave it. Donning his space-black, indetectable armor, Kennison flew down the river to the sewer's mouth. He lowered himself into the placid stream, and against the sluggish current of the sewer he made his way. The drivers of his suit were not as efficient in water as they were in air or in space, and in the dense medium his pace was necessarily slow. But he was in no hurry. It was fast enough. In a few hours he was beneath the stronghold. He then began his study of the dome. It was like Helmuth's in some ways, entirely different from it in others. There were fully as many firing stations, each with its operators ready at signal to energize and to direct the most terrifically destructive agencies known to the science of the time. There were fewer visiplates and communicators, fewer catwalks, but there were vastly more individual offices, and there were ranks and tiers of filing cabinets. There would have to be. This was the headquarters for the organized, illicit commerce of an entire galaxy. There, in the familiar center, sat at his great desk Jalte the Colonian, and beside him there sparkled the peculiar globe of force which the lensman now knew was an intergalactic communicator. "'Ha!' Kennison exclaimed triumphantly, if inaudibly, to himself. The real boss of the outfit, Boscone, is in the second galaxy. He would have to wait until that communicator went into action if it took a month. But in the meantime there was plenty to do. Those cabinets, at least, were not thought-screened. They held all the really vital secrets of the drug ring, and it would take many days to transmit the information which the patrol must have if it were to make a one hundred percent clean-up of the whole Zwillnik organization. He called worsel and upon being informed that the recorders were ready, he started in. Characteristically, he began with Prelin of Barnseca and memorized the data covering the white as he transmitted it. The next one to go down upon the steel tape was Crowninshield of Cresselia. Having exhausted all the filed information upon the organization controlled by those two regional directors, he took the rest of them in order. He had finished his real task, and had practically finished a detailed survey of the entire base, when the force-ball communicator burst into activity. Knowing approximately the analysis of the beam, and exactly its location in space, it took only seconds for Kinnison to tap it, but the longer the interview went on the more disappointed the lensman grew. Orders, reports, discussions of broad matters of policy— It was simply a conference between two high executives of a vast business firm. "'I assume, from lack of mention, that THE lensman has made no further progress,' Ike Mill concluded. "'Not so far as our best men can discover,' Jolte replied carefully, and Kennison grinned like the Cheshire Cat in his secure, if uncomfortable, retreat." It tickled his vanity immensely to be referred to so matter-of-factly as THE lensman, and he felt very smart, and cagey indeed, to be within a few hundred feet of jolty, as the Bosconian uttered the words. Lensmen by the score are still working prelin's base in Kaminochi. Some twelve of these, human or approximately so, have been returning again and again. We are checking those with care because of the possibility that one of them may be the one we want. But as yet I can make no conclusive report." The connection was broken, and the lensman's brief thrill of elated self-satisfaction died away. No soap, he growled to himself in disgust. I've got to get into that guy's mind, some way or other. How could he make the approach? Every man in the base wore a head-screen, and they were mighty careful no dogs or other pet animals. There were few birds, but it would smell very cheesy indeed, to have a bird flying around pecking at screen generators, to anyone with half a brain that would tell the whole story, and these folks were really smart. What then? There was a nice spider up there in a corner, big enough to do light work, but not big enough to attract much, if any, attention. Did spiders have minds? The power pack and the generator set were both open, being on spout belt, while the screen itself was radiated from a collar antenna round his neck. He would see what he could do. The spider had more of a mind than he had supposed, and he got into it easily enough. She could not really think at all, and at the starkly terrible savagery of her tiny ego the lensman actually winced. But at that she had redeeming features. She was willing to work hard and long for a comparatively small return of food. He could not fuse his mentality with hers smoothly, as he could do in the case of creatures of greater brain power, but he could handle her after a fashion. At least she knew that certain actions would result in nourishment. Through the insect's compound eyes the room and all its contents were weirdly distorted, but the lensman could make them out well enough to direct her efforts. She crawled along the ceiling and dropped upon a silken rope to Jalti's belt. She could not pull the plug of the power-pack. It loomed before her eyes a gigantic metal pillar, as immovable as the rock of Gibraltar. Therefore she scampered on and began to explore the mazes of the set itself. She could not see the thing as a whole. It was far too immense a structure for that. So Kinnison, to whom the device was no larger than a hand, directed her to the first grid-lead—a tiny thing, thread-thin in gross, yet to the insect it was an ordinary cable of stranded soft metal wire. Her powerful mandibles pried loose one of the component strands, and with very little effort pulled it away from its fellows beneath the head of a binding screw. The strand bent easily, and as it touched the metal of the chassis the thought-screen vanished. Instantly Kinnison insinuated his mind into Jalty's, and began to dig for knowledge. Ike Mill was his chief. Kinnison knew that already. His office was in the Second Galaxy, on the planet Jarnavon. Jalti had been there. Coordinates so-and-so, courses such-and-such. Ike Mill reported to Boscon. The lensman stiffened. Here was the first positive evidence he had found that his deductions were correct, or even that there really was such an entity as Boscon. He bored anew. Boscon was not a single entity, but a council, probably of the Ike, the natives of jarnavon Weird impressions of coldly intellectual reptilian monstrosities, horrific, indescribable. Ike Mill must know exactly who and where Boscone was, Jolte did not. Kinnison finished his research and abandoned the Colonian's mind as insidiously as he had entered it. The spider opened the short, restoring the screen to usefulness. Then before he did anything else the lensman directed his small ally to a whole family of young grubs just under the cover of his manhole. Lensmen paid their debts, even to spiders. Then, with a profound sigh of relief, he dropped down into the sewer. The submarine journey to the river was made without incident, as was the flight to his speedster. Night fell, and through its blackness there darted the even blocker shape which was the lensman's little ship. Out into intergalactic space she flashed, and homeward. And as she flew the Talurian scowled. He had gained much, but not enough by far. He had hoped to get all the data on Boscone so that he could storm headquarters in the van of Civilization's armada, invincible in its newly-devised might. No soap. Before he could do that he would have to scout Jarnavon in the second galaxy, alone. Alone? Better not. Better take the flying snake along. Good old dragon. That was a mighty long flit to be doing alone and one with some mightily high-powered opposition at the other end of it. End of chapter 18